As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Having his legs run over by KTM didn't really interrupt Peko Banyaya's run towards the 2023 MotoGP World Championship title, but a relatively innocuous crash out of the Indian Grand Prix podium fight just might. I'm Matt Beer, this is the Race MotoGP podcast, and I'm joined as usual by Simon Patterson and Valentin Hurunji, and all three of us made loud, ah, ooh, noises on lap 13 of the Indian Grand Prix on Sunday, and we, we typed them to each other as well as saying them out loud in our respective houses and press rooms. Um, when Peko Banyar crashed by himself, well, uh, seemingly looking like he could run to another safe points finish that would mean the fact that Marco Bezzecchi and Jorge Martín were having strong weekends really wouldn't even matter that much to his uh, run towards this seemingly inevitable title. So we've got a lot to get through in this episode, including a monkey invasion. So we're going to get straight to the error that's made this title fight real again. Simple question, Val, how on earth is Banyar still letting things like this happen? Yeah, it is pretty shocking because he, he obviously did not need to do that. There was absolutely no need to do it and he acknowledged after the race that it was he didn't seem like angry enough at himself as if he hasn't like fully processed yet what what's happened but it was 20 points he absolutely had no business leaving there and I mean even the way the rest of the race then panned out after that ensured that he was he gave up the easiest second place finish because obviously Jorge Martin's leathers had opened up completely and his his pace was gone through through dehydration. So as as Peko himself acknowledged, even if he hadn't overtaken Martin there, even if he had dropped back, even if he had eased off, second place would have been his. Of course, in hindsight, that's easy to say, but in any case, third place would have been his, and there would still be a thirty point lead to speak of coming out of coming out of India. Not to mention a much bigger lead over Bezeki, um, which I think is also. A, a substantial worry now, I think, at this point, given what Marco Bezzecchi looked like this weekend. Uh, the the issue is apparently Banyaya, and I, 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 I have to admit, I haven't quite fully wrapped my head around the mechanics of that, and it also sounds like maybe Ducati hasn't, and Banyaya hasn't fully, but it sounds like Banyaya has either lost a bit of confidence or a bit of feel or a bit of something on his usual strong points, which is breaking. So now he says when you know when he goes for his usual hard breaking to try to assert himself over over the other Ducatis and make up the lap time like that, the the rear begins to chatter and well he can't get it stopped the way he used to and he's being beaten by other Ducatis, namely Bitsecki and Martin on breaking like he didn't used to. And he feels that began in in Misano, but it was something that he didn't really fixate on in Misano because he, he had other issues to worry about, namely the the huge hematoma on his on his knee and leg after the Barcelona KTM hit. So that's you know at India, obviously the way this circuit is, that was always going to be a problem, and he did not at no point did he look like the the fastest rider this weekend, but he still looked very much on course to to go away with a. With an easy podium, so he overtook Jorge Martin, who you know he hounded Jorge Martin for a lot of laps before that. So it it did feel like, for all of his troubles, 
there was a bit of pace there in reserve in comparison to Martin, which I think wasn't fully about Martin's dehydration. I think that was just the, the state of play. I think Banyaya had the pace for second place. And, you know, once he overtook him, he says that he didn't really up his pace. But in any case, you know, he was probably trying to keep the intensity high to build up the gap. And he, you know, he tucked the front. So he, he had a rear slide. Then when the rear, you know, got back in line, the front got more loaded. And that is something that Banyaya says the Ducati just really doesn't like. And it's something that he, he couldn't manage in that particular instance. And, and he's on the ground and 20 points are gone. So the, the the issue that he's been complaining about for a while is that he says since since Mizano they've lost something under braking, and it seems to be that whatever they've lost is actually a bit of rear stability and they're getting shatter as he's gone into the corner. But the the weird thing to me post race Simpeco was that he kind of you know in the past we've seen him do stupid stuff like this and fall off whenever he didn't need to and give away a load of championship points, and he's always been like devastated afterwards. He, he's someone who right away knows that he's made a colossal mistake and you can really read that in his body language afterwards. But this weekend, he was almost like washing his hands and absolving himself of any blame in this crash and putting it all on his engineers, specifically, not even Ducati, because he can't blame Ducati whenever the bike is working for the other guys. But he was saying, you know, there's a problem here. My side of the garage need to fix this. And this is kind of nothing to do with me. I crashed because, you know, something went wrong. But the the reality is that even if that is the case, and even if you know this is something that's that's happening without any influence from him, it was something that first appeared at Mizano. It's something that he wrote all weekend there with. He says it's something that he's been writing all weekend here with. So he knew it was there. He knew that this issue was a an issue, but he still took the risk to try and get away from from Martin, and you know. I, I don't know, was he trying to hunt down Bezeki? Because that was a complete fool's game if that had been no. his attempt. But no yeah, he 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 should have comfortably finished that race in third. He had no need to pass Martin because at the end of the day, Martin was faster than him. And, you know, the, the thing that makes champions is the ability to limit damage on bad weekends more than it is the ability to score maximum points in weekends when you feel like Superman. So... Losing four points would have been fine. Losing 20 points is a colossal mistake. And it's one of his own making, regardless of who he blames or who you know where he tries to put the blame on it. It's At the end of the day, it was him that pushed beyond the bike's capabilities and should have known better. Well, this is it. It feels so reminiscent of the early part of the season where he had that string of errors. And in each case, he kind of said something similar to this, really. That the bike did something I didn't expect. The bike's doing something I don't understand. And it just it does seem to catch him out more than other riders. Now, presumably Ducati fixed or got around whatever was bothering him at the start of the season, and this is a new problem from Misano now. I guess with how things have been on the other side of the factory garage this year, it's hard to really quantify that as well. It's not like there's another another regular fast rider having the same problems or giving yeah. different feedback. We've only got a week to go to the next race in Motegi, so there's not a lot of chance for Ducati to change anything. You wouldn't have thought that will fix this problem. So he's got to start riding, not even riding within the limits of the bike, but like, like you say, so I'm just understanding that if there's something that you're not happy with on the bike, when you've got realistically a title that should be completely in your pocket with the state of the rest of the grid this year, just ride at 99 point something percent if you need to and focus on fixing that problem rather than, it feels like he's trying to ride like he's found a problem. He's trying to ride that the problem isn't there, and then blaming the problem. Yeah, but pretty much that is that's what it sounds like. And you know the fact that he is so quick to say my engineers is going to fix this. It's got a bit of like blind trust in it, and I think he needs to take a bit more ownership of this and and yeah. lead this rather than hope for the solution to come from somewhere else. Um, but the, the the other factor then as well, though, that I can't help but, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday, um, Sunday afternoon, when I was sort of standing next to him, listening to him uh, talking about all this, is that he's blaming, you know, he's saying something has radically changed since Mizano, something is different, something doesn't feel right. And then you look down and he's still got a massive compression bandage around his leg. Yeah. And And there's part of me that thinks... Are you sure this is the bike? Are you sure you're still not riding differently because you're in pain? You know, he's already talked in Mizano at length about how he had to change his riding style and, and use his upper body more than his lower body because he couldn't hold on with his legs. 
And yeah, I just, I wonder if, you know, maybe he's either convinced himself that the leg injury isn't as bad as it is, or if he's just not letting on and, you know, conveniently blaming something else for the time being. I, I, I've also come to that conclusion that it, it might be, you know, it might be something of a physical limitation or it might be something of a of a confidence feel limitation because, you know, Pecos had a traumatic event happen to him. He had a, he had a bike hit him at speed while he was falling down from like two story high or whatever. And he was lucid through all of that moment. So clearly he will have realized in those seconds, Oh, the championship might be over. And also my leg might, might snap in half. And also maybe both of them, which would have been like, that would have been really tough. And I, I can't imagine that's an easy thing to overcome, even though it's not something that's really come up when he's talked about it. But I, the part that surprises me is so they've not added any new bits to the bike they've not done anything with the setup but something's changed so much to where a strength has become a weakness for me that's something you that's something that then you go into the mechanical aspect of it and you try to back to back bikes to see is there like a crack somewhere and something just doesn't work at this point and we need to like rebuild it from zero Maybe that's what they'll do for Mategi. That also hasn't really come up in India. I don't know if they did if they were doing something like that, but it hasn't just hasn't come up. Just to jump in there quickly, um, from what we understand, the ability to rebuild a bike from scratch before Mategi is going to be severely limited because it's right. going to take time to get freight out of India, and they're expecting to receive stuff on Thursday sometime. So that they're going to be up but against still the two clock bikes. of that. There's still two bikes, but every rider has their number one and their number two. And you know, that's true. Sports. That's true. Yeah, and that's 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 the part I was I was thinking about. Like, if is it serious enough to where you start to sort of lean on your unfavored bike or start to mix and match and do whatever? Obviously, it's very complicated like that. But if if there's something wrong with the equipment, and that's like, what else can you suspect? It's either if you've not changed anything else, it doesn't just magically. You know, it's not like the good setup magically became becomes the bad setup. And if you've seen it at two pretty different tracks now, you have to look at the at the equipment. But we but we also know very often in motorsport that sometimes it's just a a strange rider confidence thing that happens. So it's it'll be interesting to figure out. Again, Banyai says that he expects it to to be sorted coming into Mategi, but he also said on Saturday that he expected it to be sorted for Sunday. And he felt it was a little better on Sunday, but clearly not better enough not to chuck the bike into the gravel. So it's, I think a big part of it also, or at least it would be for me if I was in his position and maybe I'm a bit more neurotic, but I doubt that. in any case, <laughs> he's a motorbike racer. I doubt that. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm a motorbike racer in everything, but the, the talent <laughs> to, to ride motorbikes and the physical fitness and the fame and the money. Anyway, um, the, the, the problem is, I think he knows Jorge Martinez really good in the flyaway tracks. Yeah. I think he knows that like more lap records are coming from Martin. Maybe that's a worry. Also at the same time, I think he saw Bitseki sprint and was really didn't like what he saw because also Bitseki came up unprompted in his media session, I think. Because he was asked about Martin and he was like, Yeah, yeah, Martin, but did you see the the 10 second win by by Bitseki? Like he's not enjoying that clearly either, and he's he's feeling suddenly feeling a lot of pressure from within the camp, whereas previously he felt like he really did have him at arm's length over most weekends. So, and the flyaways can get a little weird when it comes to that kind of thing. So maybe that's weighing on it, and that contributed to the to the to the to the mistake. But you know, maybe he just lost concentration and fell off. It's probably you know, it's probably always the simplest explanation. <laughs> the um. One thing that that uh, he's going to be hoping for, you know, we'll touch upon this later in the the podcast. But the one thing he's going to be hoping for now is that the next few races are just absolutely red hot, uh, and that hopefully Martin, you know, the, the little bit of weakness we saw post race in uh, in India, is something that carries on. But at the same time, Marco Bezzecchi looked like you know he just stopped, like he just come from like a, a slow five k run post race. Yeah. He was the most unstressed person ever. So. It's going to be super interesting to see how the title fight swings over the next few rounds. 
uh, this this will come up later, but Marco Bezzecchi also looked like he was in a multi-class endurance race and he was of the top class and he was <laughs> passing traffic on slower machines. <laughs> I, I watched yeah. this full sprint race. It looked he looked like he was on a on a stroll. He did not exert himself in basically any of the overtakes. So that that will be intimidating to look at. And all the all the data you can find out looking at Marco Bezzecchi's lap times. It's all very intimidating. Uh, I mean, I'm getting to it now, I guess. But uh, in his sprint, I think the fastest lap set by anybody else, which was Jorge Martin, the winner, was equal to Bezzecchi's seventh fastest lap. I think something like that. And in the main race, there was kind of a similar thing going on, where I think from lap two to lap eight, all of his laps were quicker than anything anybody else did at any point. And then also a handful of laps after that. Just racing in another category this weekend. So, uh, you know, it wasn't the wasn't the, the the toughest prediction ever to make. But obviously after Saturday, I was like, if he gets out of turn one on Sunday, he wins that race by a whole lot, which is exactly what happened. It, it was quite telling that after the sprint race, whenever we, we saw them sort of in the holding area um, with the cameras rolling, the, the topic of conversation was Bez's lap times yeah. and not any of their, you know, own individual performances to get on the podium of the race. Well, this this is the key thing now, isn't it? We're, we're talking about how big a lead Banyaya has been throwing away, but he's had a cushion all season, not just in terms of the points gap, but in terms of he's not had a realistic rival because, Simon, you said at least 8,000 times this year, satellite bikes cannot win championships. And he's had no factory opposition of note because Ducati's the best bike and Bastianini is hurt. So he is up against two satellite bikes. One of them is a year-old satellite bike and, and a team that's not been in MotoGP very long either. In theory, this is still Banyaya's to walk, given the opposition, as long as he sorts himself out. But... I mean, I've always had a little bit of a soft spot for the underdog story anyway, so I was always really hoping that Martino Bezzecchi might be real championship threats. But this weekend, they both, to me, really looked at the sheer pace they have. We'll talk about Martin's strange Sunday in a minute, but he absolutely cruised the sprint. Obviously, that would be much, much, much harder, if not impossible, with Bezzecchi there as well. But those two are in very, very good form at the moment. They're not expected to win a championship. There's, I would say there's absolutely zero pressure on them. Is, yeah, maybe a three-way fight is a bit ambitious given the points deficit Bezeki still has, but this, to me, looks like a real title fight again. What do you two reckon? Yeah, yeah. I think it would look. I, I think it would look more threatening for Banya if you swapped Bezeki and Martin in in the point standings. Ooh. I really do think that. I think Martin has had a a good run recent, but it is also telling to me that. Banyaya, even with his lack of confidence, really should have beaten Jorge Martin to the finish on Sunday, independent of Martin's subsequent issues with dehydration. I, I, Bezeki is more intimidating in those sort of. I just I couldn't imagine Jorge Martin doing this weekend what Marco Bezeki did this weekend, which is not to say that Jorge Martin's having a bad season, that he's slow in anywhere, that he can't win the championship. Obviously, he can. Obviously, he's you know there at the sharp end over and over again, and now managing to qualify really super well again, which will be important. But it, again, if Martin and Bezeki were swapped, I would be more concerned. And I don't think Bezeki's out of it just yet, just because he can't be out of it when you have weekends like this. Just, you know, there's 37 on offer every weekend, and he's you know he's what 44 off or something like that. That's still in range ish especially when Pekka Banyaya does the, the kind of thing he, he does so yeah I do think I was very skeptical after Mizano and I would have still been pretty skeptical if Banyaya just kept the bike on the black stuff this weekend but he didn't so there's enough of a season to go where I'm a lot less skeptical now at the prospect of a, of a championship race so I'm, I'm going to be accused of arguing semantics here but I don't think Marco Bezzecchi or Jorge Martin can win this championship, but I'm pretty sure that there is the potential for Peko Bagnaia to lose it. Yeah, I think that's fair phrasing. I, I, you know, I think, I think Peko, if Peko gets his head sorted and gets, you know, back where he needs to be, and is just super consistent like he's been, and then you know picks away the result here and there, uh, you know, takes a few points off them here and there again, he'll manage this to the end without a problem. I, I don't see any drama in that at all. But if he keeps doing really, really stupid stuff like he does on Sunday, 
um, then you know it's it's anyone's game. the The only thing that gives me some reassurance is that traditionally he doesn't do stupid stuff like he did on Sunday multiple times in a row. He tends to do it like once here and once there, like we've seen this season and last season and whatever. So I think that you know if he can if he can put this weekend behind him really quickly. And even if he goes to Mategi and comes away with a, a couple of podiums and limits the damage to, to the other two, then it's it's you know it's right back on track for him. But he can't have another one of these stupid mistakes this year. If he has another one of these these errors, these unforced errors, then it's a whole different ball game, like without a doubt. But uh, I think that's not in the hands of Martin and and Bezeki, which is why I say they can't win the title because it's, it's it's kind of. I don't think there's anything that they can do to influence those stupid mistakes because, let's be honest, Peko doesn't need influence to screw up. He just does it of his own volition anyway. Um, yeah, so, the, you know, they need to keep doing what they're doing and hope that he screws up and he needs to get his head sorted, get his game together and stop doing stupid stuff. I think the problem for Banyaya now for me is that, that with the cushion com- almost completely gone, He's now in the realms of it not needing a particularly bad race for it to get very, very close. Yeah. You know, if if he finishes second to Martin or finishes second behind Martin Bezeki top two, Martin is absolutely right with him in the points now. It's it's gone. He needed to remember a few races ago, I think, well, actually probably all season. No one actually, I don't think anyone really, really remembers five, ten, maybe even two years on how a title was won. Like, as a Formula One comparison, the Jensen Button Braun fairy tale title in 2009, no one really remembers the detail of their results being rubbish for six months of that season. It, it's the fact they, they made that championship win possible that sticks in people's minds. You know, Banyaya will still almost certainly be remembered as a, a, a double back to back MotoGP world champion, maybe even a, a triple one, because I, I don't see too many obvious threats being ready to, to go for him next season with things as they are at the moment he would be remembered a, a lot worse for losing this title having had a very clear run at it they would be for winning this title with a bunch of second and third places in the second half of the season yeah but he's maybe he's maybe seen what happened last year to to a rider who who's had six bad-ish months not not fabio's fault not fabio Carrara's <laughs> fault but you know that's how it happened probably it's removed a bit of confidence from maybe everybody in title races over just how much of a points cushion is is enough although obviously Becca Bagnaio does not have that same problem this this season of a bike that's just growing gradually more and more and more outmatched that's not the problem for him what is the problem for him now um do you guys know how many so Becca Bagnaio has 16 Grand Prix wins 16 Sunday Grand Prix wins can you guess how many of them are not in Europe (laughs) It's it's on the lower end of the spectrum, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, is it like one or two? It is one. It is a one. It is Malaysia last Malaysia. year. He also does have one win in Valencia, which is still coming up. But otherwise, I would say this is not this is not his best stretch of races coming up. I would argue. That's my suspicion. I think he like where you would really expect him to press his advantage is that mid-year European stint. And now it hasn't happened because of what has happened recently. It was happening to a point and now it's it's really all just gone. So that's that's also another part I would worry about. Not that he's necessarily like bad at those tracks. Obviously his 2022 charge was built on also being consistently on the podium or there or thereabouts in many of those flyaway races. But it's not races that you can just expect him to, you know, have walkovers on. And he's not fighting a Yamaha for the title. He's fighting two fellow Ducatis who will all be, you'd expect, pretty good at those tracks when he is. I'm just going to throw it out there. This is just a a random point I want to make. If he loses this championship to a satellite Ducati, then this is a worse title defense than Juan Mir's. (laughs) Juan Mir's title defense was good. No, I, 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 I don't disagree with that because John Muir's title defense was pretty good. <laughs> Honestly, it was arguably... Yeah, it was good for a few races. It was... No, well, okay, it wasn't like great in terms of results and he never won a race, but he was, it was good in terms of the riding. <laughs> the riding, I think, was yeah. was pretty great. He, he, he did finish third this season, that season, didn't he? It was without winning a race. Yeah, he did. So yeah. I, I still... Yeah, okay. I still hold that season. It would be it would be a pretty bad title defense. I don't know where it would rank. I mean, let's not. <laughs> uh, 
Let's not get there yet. Because- I'll, I'll tell you one thing. If he does lose this title of satellite bike, it's the last time for another two decades that someone's going to run a number one plate. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. If he does lose this title to satellite bike, Simon will have to retire the satellite bike <laughs> championships thing. <laughs> we'll be free. If, if a satellite bike wins this championship, it won't have won it, though. Peko will have lost. Have lo- oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's... I know you said that you will get you will get negativity for that technicality, but the negativity is coming from inside the house. Nah, but I like negativity for I'm everything I say. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So slight confession now, at the end of recording the last post-race episode a couple of weeks ago, uh, we signed off saying we'd, we'd see you again after the Indian Grand Prix, and then we made a, a little off-air joke along the lines of, if it actually happens, because the Indian Grand Prix has been the source of great uncertainty all the way through the season for lots of different reasons around circuit upgrades that didn't seem to be progressing, riders had lots of safety fears before the event, building up to the, the event, literally with days to go, or <laughs> hours in some cases, whether the riders and teams could even get into the country was an issue. Simon, you made it to India. You had several days there. You're now recording this podcast from a hotel overlooking Hong Kong Harbour, which looks fantastic, having swiftly got back out of India again. How would you sum up MotoGP's first trip? Because it, um, I would say it looks successful in terms of it actually ran smoothly compared to how it could have done, but there, there was uh, this, it was quite eventful along the way, wasn't it? There was some there was some hurdles. There was some hurdles. Um, so first of all, I think we should probably start with the fact that most of us almost didn't make it there. Um, we we were told in July to use Dorner's approved agency to apply for our visas, which we all did. Um, by the weekend before the race, I think about eighty percent of the paddock still hadn't got their visas. Um, which was obviously people were starting to get a little bit worried because people were starting to fly on Monday and Tuesday. Um, I think in the end, so on on Monday night at about midnight, Dorna told us to just organize our own visas as quickly as we could and they'd try and get them approved. And I think about 80, I think about 70% of the paddock got their visas by doing it themselves in the end. Um, but you know, the, there were there were teams who I've been told have spent nearly half a million euros rebooking flights. Wow! Because all their flights were booked for a day that the visas hadn't arrived for, and they had to essentially move fifty people's flights back a day. the The bill for the mess with the visas is going to be catastrophic. It's going to be huge. Um, mine arrived while I was driving to the airport to get in my flight. But there's lots of others in the paddock who aren't part of teams who, you know, are basically thousands of euros, thousands of pounds, because they've had to rebook flights at the last minute. And we don't know what's going to happen with getting money back for that, which which sucks. Um, weirdly, and, and what really shows that, that Dorna completely lost control of this whole situation is that one of the very last people to get their visas was Mark Marquez. <laughs> So it's obvious that there wasn't like some sort of mysterious pecking order where, you know, the photographers and the journalists they didn't like were being left to last. Um, yeah, um, it looked until until probably about Thursday morning, it still looked touch and go whether or not we were going to have a race. So eventually, I think almost everyone got there. Some people didn't. Some people never made it. Some of the journalists, some of the team staff just never got visas. Um so we we you know enough of us got there to have a race and all the riders got there. 
Then we got our first look at the circuit, which is something that has been a real question mark for months, literally, um, because the circuit was designed for car racing. It was used briefly for F1, and then it was left essentially abandoned for 10 years. And we didn't know what we were going to expect and you know what to expect in terms of safety. Um, a few of the riders got there. They looked around the track, and actually they said, you know, maybe we were a bit too harsh here. This isn't as bad as we thought. And a large part of that, skepticism and, and that fear i think just turned out from bad pr more than anything else because the circuit have done the majority of the safety changes that they promised to do but not most of them not all of them but they didn't tell us about any of it you know we were working behind a vacuum and that applies to the teams and the writers as well as as the journalists and the media so what we eventually found was a track that there's a couple of corners that are still dangerous, especially if it rains because there's walls too close. And the writers have made it very clear that that all needs to be fixed for next year. But apart from that, the, the facilities of the track are amazing, apart from the fact that there seems to be a, 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 I don't know, what's the collective noun for monkeys? There's a rather large family of monkeys living in the, in the, the main pit building. And, and I don't mean large as in there's a lot of them. I mean, they're big monkeys. <laughs> Um, Jack Miller made friends with one in particular that's living in their pit box and has been feeding it bananas all weekend. So, um, but apart from that, the facilities were great. And it's fair to say that the riders absolutely love the circuit because it's fast, it's flowing, it's got elevation changes, it's got hard braking, it's got a lot going on. So, you know, we got there and we found... Ah, this is fine. This is not at all as bad as we thought it was. And, and you know, we're, we're going to have a, a fairly good race here. Um, th there was a few more hurdles after that. Um, the marshals at one point all went on strike because they hadn't been given food and water. And it was insanely hot, which is, I don't really blame them for going on strike. Um, we had a lot of delays due to various, you know, track contamination and, and stuff like that. We had some really extreme rain on Saturday afternoon. And then we had the heat, which eventually led to the race being cut short and led to all sorts of problems for all sorts of riders. It The, the, the heat this weekend is like nothing I've ever experienced before the racetrack. It was so intense. And it, it wasn't just temperature. It wasn't just that the sun was baking the place. It had super high humidity and, and the combination of those two factors was just cripplingly hot. It, it wasn't like, you know, we've been to Sepang, we've been to Indonesia, we've been to Thailand, we've been to lots of hot places. And normally you go outside and you're like instantly soaking because it's so sweaty and, and, you know, but it's bearable, it's manageable. Here was just next level. And it's no wonder that we saw the scenes that we saw with, with riders like passing out and collapsing, almost collapsing after the race. Um, because it was, yeah, it was horrible. But, you know, we cut the race short. We went racing. We had a good race, apart from, you know, a, a sketchy turn one, which I think is maybe a combination of, of you know, the fact that all turn one turns one are sketchy at the minute and a slightly tricky one here, more than, you know, putting all the blame on the layout of the track here. Um, we, we Yeah, we had good racing. We had a, a decent crowd, but not a fantastic crowd. But I think a large part of the reason for that is because the circuit were so desperately trying to do all the things you have to do to put on a race that they kind of forgot that they were putting on a race and that they should tell people about it. And the, the marketing and the PR really struggled there as well. But that's, you know, that's a lesson they've learned. That's something they're aware of for next year. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, all in all, it was a successful weekend, despite a few hurdles. I'd call it a more successful weekend than our first trip to Indonesia was, because the track fell apart in that one, and we had all sorts of issues. So, yeah, you know, we, 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 yeah, everything worked, and we are absolutely going back next year because we get a we get a little bit of a glimpse of just how big the audience is here, how big the market is here. Um, you know, the the thing probably more than anything else that really sold it for me about how big a market and how, you know, how much opportunity there was here was how many really knowledgeable, really experienced veteran motorsports journalists there were in the media center from India. Because normally we, we go to overseas races where there isn't a huge race in culture or motorsport culture. And, and a lot of the local journalists who come are guys from national papers or, you know, people who don't write about motorsport all the time. But that wasn't the case here. There, there is obviously a big market, a big demand for, for two wheels in India. 
And MotoGP absolutely has to cap, you know, cash in on that. We we have to get on board with it. And if we do, this is going to be a really exceptional round in the future. It's, it is a, a heartening outcome for Bud International Circuit, which, you know, if you look at the onboards, if you look at everything, if you look at the broadcast, you can see it's a good track with some really cool ideas in it even if it was designed originally for cars you can see that i thought you were going to say even if it was originally designed by herman tilke <laughs> no because I, I to be fair i think herman tilke gets a unacceptably bad rap but that's a that's a story for an entirely other day i've, I've heard now oh it's good for a tilke circuit for like 700 tilke circuits already <laughs> just something people say like it's just they feel like there's uh, anyway wow <laughs> anyway it's a good track you can see from the onboard, you know, the undulations, the variety of the corners. You know, maybe the straight's a bit long, but fine, whatever. Um, and it's just, you know, it's one of those tracks that, you know, Formula One, as Formula One sometimes tends to do, you know, commissioned for an insane amount of money, then showed up at a couple of times, and there it stands, you know, basically forgotten. Uh, it's like, you know, it's like some of those Olympic stadiums and stuff like that. It's just... It's sad when that happens. This is, you know, a, a big project that a lot of funds went into and suddenly, you know, nobody wants to do anything major with it. So I'm glad, I'm glad MotoGP is putting it <clears throat> to good use. And it, you know, the, it's very good that the main safety fears proved not so substantial, although there is still one area of the track that you can see why it causes riders a lot of concerns and it, you know turn one obviously is where everybody was crashing but turn one seems reasonable in terms of how the crashing happens but turn 10 where nobody crashed you look at turn 10 you even you look at it on the onboards and you see so turn 10 is the the left hander that is part of the left right uh fast section in the third sector right after the the really pretty bank double right and you can see that there's just not a lot of room there that you just really do not want to crash there in the wet and the dry, whatever. And I think I didn't see anybody crash there that weekend. And maybe there was a bit of care baked in or whatever, but that's that's one that multiple riders have pointed at and said this next year they have to do something with this. And if they do something with this, then this is fine for a MotoGP circuit, but this this particular point they have to sort out. I hope they do. I hope they figure it out. I don't know logistics of doing something like that, but I, you know, I really hope so. And then we can just be very chilled out and enjoy racing at a good track for years and years to come. One thing that I, I, I want to say, I'm going to say, and it, it is a touchy subject, so I'm going to be careful about it because I'm not trying to offend anyone. But this was weirdly probably the most political MotoGP race I've ever been to in that it was very much a government project. Um, which is really interesting. It's you know it's not a criticism at all. We've had races in the past that have been backed by like local government, backed by state government. You know that's fairly standard. But this one, like the 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 Indian, the ruling BJP party were like, we're going to make this thing happen, and then they really committed to it. And that's you know that's something that we don't see very often, but it probably bodes well for the long term future of the race. Yeah, I mean, as, as somebody who's been to some Formula One races of a of a certain kind, <laughs> a government project motorsport event doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really surprise me very much. It's not even something that I've noticed as being out of the ordinary. So it's it's interesting that it's it stuck out for you. It's it's not something that we've ever really had. You know, it, it doesn't really. Um, I think I guess Indonesia is a little bit like that, but there's such a huge groundswell base fan. You know, such a, a big fandom in Indonesia that it doesn't really feel forced as a result. Um, and Qatar is just, you know, a, a single ruling family who click their fingers and things happen. So you don't really notice their influence on it. But this was a this was a really sustained, you know, we had the chief minister of the region there. We had the prime minister supposed to come, but in the end he didn't appear. But, you know, this is a guy who, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about Prime Minister Modi coming to a MotoGP race like, five days after he's just hosted G20 with all the world's leaders there and in the middle of a massive diplomatic incident with Canada and he's taken his time out to potentially come and see a MotoGP race. So that that really shows the, uh, you know, the level of commitment from, yeah, national, state and national government. Other than the, the weather delays and, and the slightly curious martial delay, the, the other like notable reorganisation that happened on the fly was the race distances being cut. The, the weird one for that about me was how much it was presented as a tyre-based decision as well as a rider fitness one. And then you went and spoke to Michelin and they were like, nope, 
that's that's nothing to do with us, basically. Yeah, and then I went to speak to the writers, and the writers were like, yeah, no, that was all us. <laughs> so I don't really understand why tires were brought into it, because it, it just wasn't the case. The writers were just overheating. Um, and a couple of the guys said afterwards that, you know, it, it was completely the right decision. Um, we actually had a, a really good conversation that um, I haven't haven't pitched this to you two yet, but at some point I think it's worth turning into a feature in the next couple of weeks uh, with Paul about creating a, you know, how MotoGP needs to create an extreme weather protocol like, like a lot of other sports have now. Because, you know, as the world is getting warmer and as we're going to places at different times of the year, this is going to be more and more an issue. Um, he he was saying that they they have a temperature sensor on the bike that sits just uh, on the dash basically, and for most of the race it was showing sixty five degrees. So basically, he was breathing sixty five degree air for wow. for you know twenty one laps, and all of the all of the complaints weirdly all of the complaints that riders had pretty much universally about you know burning. Normally, it's like ankles where there's an exhaust close to the foot peg or it's it's handlebar you know fingers where the air gets trapped behind the the uh the dash but all of the complaints this weekend were their throats burning from the heat of the air so um there's an issue there that's going to be addressed and i think it'll be it'll be probably a safety commission thing for next weekend because it's going to be you know it's going to come up at least a couple more times over the next uh over the next few weeks because actually um you know, everyone still remembers that horrible weekend in Mategi where every single session was wet a few years ago. Uh, but this weekend, Mategi is going to be like 32 degrees. Oh, gosh. So, uh, you know, it could even happen again as soon as next weekend. And it, it did lead to the very strange scenes around Jorge Martin at the end of the Grand Prix as well, which took a little bit of un- unraveling because obviously he was in bad shape. There was the curiosity about his, uh, his leathers coming undone as well. Simon, you, you did by the end of Sunday, managed to kind of dig into with a bit of asking around and looking at high-res photos exactly what had happened there, didn't you? Yeah. So the the, the leathers incident, in the end, actually, whenever we, we looked at photos and stuff, it was pretty easy to figure out what had happened. After Fabio Cotteraro had his incident in Barcelona in 2021, where his, his leather suit came unzipped, Alpine Stars changed the design of the uh, the collar of the suit. So instead of being a single, it was previously a single strip of Velcro about a, a centimeter wide. It's now like three or four centimeters, that tab. It's massive. Um, it's, a, it's a really big attachment. So what it seems has happened is Jorge hasn't closed that on the grid. And the, the top of the zipper on the suit has a piece of Velcro on each side. So whenever it's below that tab, it stays put. At some point during the start of the first few laps of the race, he's obviously realized that it was flapping and reached up at some point and closed it. But the zip wasn't in the the Velcro at the time. So the zip has been able to creep down over the course of the race, which is why whenever we saw a suit come undone, unlike Fabio, uh, Jorge's was still closed at the top, which is actually testament to Alpine Star's design change because obviously that Velcro is pretty strong now. Um we initially thought that he would probably be penalised for it because that's what we've been told after the Quadraro incident that would happen. But um, I, I had like vaguely recalled a, a, a statement or a press release at some point saying that they were going to change the, the the dashboard messages they could send as a result of that as well. And it turns out that the reason that he wasn't penalised was because as soon as race control had realized something was wrong, he got a dash message that said equipment, equipment, equipment flashing in front of him. He realized what had happened and he, you know, took the time to, like, let's be honest, really impressively zip his leathers closed mid-corner, basically, yeah. between between two of the direction changes. Yeah. Um, Turn 11. And, and saved his race, essentially. Because yeah. he, you know, he, he could have lost a lot more time there. He essentially didn't lose that much to Quattararo um, and then although Fabio eventually got past him, it was more because Martin made a mistake shortly afterwards, uh, but he was able to recruit. So, yeah, all in all, he, he got very, very lucky. He, he didn't speak to, to the media effectively after because he was clearly in no shape to particularly engage in Park Ferme and wasn't feeling good enough to, to attend the press conference. 
Uh, Jorge Martin does sometimes miss media sessions when he's not had a particularly good day. He does, say, yeah, he does have a bit of a habit. I'm not saying it was a convenient excuse. No, but to, but yeah, I mean, it was it was no huge shock knowing that. But at the, he did look really rough. Yeah. So, you know, when you have an excuse, who's what can, what can we say? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but it will be very interesting at some point to find out why he did it at lane angle. <laughs> why he, like, so again, he was at turn 11 at that, you know, second part of the of the left-right. And he was still at lean angle while he was zip, zipping it up. He didn't straighten out himself in the bike. And I, I, I'd like to know why that is because there's there's big straights on the on the India track. So whether it was him realizing it and doing it immediately or whether it was strategically to minimize time loss on acceleration on the big straight, minimize whatever, it's, it's just, it was an interesting place to do it. I think everybody who saw the the Martin facing camera on his bike and saw him do it in lean angle was very impressed and surprised. I mean, and at that point, it was like, okay, you can't penalize that. He has to finish. <laughs> that might have been the tactic. Let's just do this in the most impressive way I can, and maybe yeah. I'll uh, maybe I'll get away with it just for looking cool. So we talked quite a lot about the Ducatis dominating things which is not a surprise but a bit of a change behind them this weekend bit of a a a sort of retro surprise of repsol hondas and factory yamahas going quickly mark marquez near the front uh jamir near the front on a repsol honda that just was the most bizarre scene to see two repsol hondas near the front of a moto gp race again i cannot really remember this and Fabio Quartararo getting a Sunday podium as well in the end. So yeah, Val, where did where did this come from? Because I didn't I I didn't see this little flicking form coming from these two. I mean, if I if I told you, I'd be much richer because I'd be employed by presumably Honda and or Yamaha and or both to make sure that happens at every other weekend. <laughs> it just it, it is a little bit hard to say why they were so in such good shape because again with the huge straight you wouldn't expect yamaha to go particularly well and maybe a lot of honestly maybe a lot of yamaha's good weekend was just attrition and circumstantial just fabio going really well i'm not sure how much of it was and maybe a little bit the circuit layout yeah but it really is hard to say how much of it represents a a logical big step and also when you watch the onboard again of bezeki of how how the disgusting ease which we with which the year old Ducati gobbled up the Yamaha on the straight. It I mean it still still leaves a lot to be desired. And Fabio uh, he was clearly happy with the podium, but there's still that a little bit of that signature Fabio crankiness about the whole situation and just you know the the acceleration stuff and all the all the weaknesses and you know the fact that even after finishing on the podium, he he had to point out just how annoying it was to see the difference to his bike and the, the bikes he was fighting. And like, because the way he lost second place, because again, Jorge Martin dehydrated, misses the braking at the end of the back straight, goes miles wide. When he returns, uh, Quartararo takes the place on the approach to turn five. Then out of turn five, Quartar gets no drive whatsoever, and Martin swoops around him around the outside of t- the turn six in a very, very nice, very pretty move. But a move made possible by the fact that the the Yamaha didn't put the power down coming out of five, which was worn tires, obviously, but also just not a great bike for that kind of thing right now. Um, so yeah, Quartararo, it's great ride, tinged with a bit of frustration. The Hondas. Duh. I don't know. Uh, look, it's because they didn't change anything. They didn't bring the 2024 prototype here or anything. In fact, that was a, a apparently a major point of contention. And there were some interesting words said about the 2024 prototype that we'll get into a bit later. But no, they were riding just their regular bikes. Mir felt like he'd found something in the Misano test that just allowed him to ride the bike better more than... Maybe the position maybe a little bit. I'm not sure, but it's just something that allowed him to do better lines, just a, a greater understanding of the Honda. And that came through on the weekend, clearly, because he was good. Uh, Marquez was very fast. Uh, and he felt it was more that the track is just a lot like the Circuit of the Americas, which is the site of Honda's greatest weekends of this year so far, and Alex Rins' shock win. 
which I it's I do see. It is easy to see how you know how you see. And it's not just because of the not just because of the long straight rule. That is certainly a big part of it. Um, but again, what we also saw is both of them did crash in one race each, didn't they? And both of them required hitching a ride with Pekko Banyaya in Q2 to get uh, to get to as high on the grid as they were. So a lot of the job there was done already in qualifying with the traditional Honda tactic by themselves. I can't imagine they qualify anywhere near as high. I can't imagine they have anywhere as good as a weekend. What we saw for me with all three bikes was an example of how important qualifying is in MotoGP at the minute. And an example or a reminder that, you know, talent is permanent and form is temporary, especially whenever you've not got very much data to go on. Um, I think more than anything else, they came into a circuit. I, I, don't, I don't buy that the track layout helped them because the two two ends of the circuit are so different that I don't think that's particularly an issue. You've got, you know, one super stop start tight section of the track and then one really fast and flowing section with a huge straight in between. So I don't really think that that's, a, that's an influencing factor here. But Mark has said it himself on, on day one that, you know, whenever all of these guys were fast, he was like, yeah, of course we're fast. We're the best in the world and no one's ever been here before. <laughs> and I think that, kind of stands true you know the the three of them are the the previous three MotoGP world champions actually um you know to, to collectively and we saw that form again this weekend and on a you know where there was a bit of a chance to to make the most of it whenever people weren't so familiar they used it more than anything else to get themselves into good qualifying positions and then you know through a combination of of race craft and skill they were able to turn it into decent race results they did it especially the two hondas they did it absolutely on the limit and that's why one of them crashed in each race you know marquez admitted that his last like four laps of the sprint race were basically qualifying laps um he conceded that you know whenever you try to do that most weekends you just crash your brains out and get hurt and that's why he stopped doing it but he basically, I think he said that, you know, it's different doing it for P15. Whenever there's a podium on the line, it's worth it. Um, and that's what we saw for both of them. Mir was actually quite disappointed afterwards that he didn't get in the podium because they'd, they'd um, developed an issue that sounds kind of like he was maybe putting the blame a little bit in Michelin without saying the words um, with the rear of the bike. But, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's interesting to see. And... I think if you know why it happened, then you know more than, you know, specifically, you know more than any of they do because they don't really understand it either. And they were all quite open about that. But in saying that, the you know, they've all left with quite a bit of hope. Um, the two Hondas in particular are quite hopeful that this actually means that, you know, something they've done. Um, Mere theorized that maybe you know the thing that he'd done was a whole lot of laps in Mizano and actually just time to ride the bike and change things around a bit have worked um and and we saw something yeah we saw something a bit different so I mean it's good to see those three guys back at the sharp end <laughs> let's hope that it wasn't a blip yeah but not all rosy in the in the Honda camp I think we should touch upon the yeah yeah 2024 bike situation and what what's going on there so coming into the weekend before everybody had an idea that it was actually going to be a really good weekend Juan Mir was quite vocally I would say unhappy with the fact that the 2024 chassis prototype which they can race because clearly it fits the 2023 engine and there's nothing preventing them from you know just sticking the allocated engines into there because you know engines are homologated but obviously what you do with them Different sort of question. Um, he was quite vocally unhappy that he didn't get that prototype to race here already. And he said there was, I think he said it was being sent back to Japan. And that's why it couldn't make its way to India. Which, reading between the lines, he didn't particularly appreciate as a list of priorities. So I'm guessing it goes back to Japan for all sorts of checks and verifications and that kind of thing. Simon, Simon has a is making a face. I mean, I, I I think that that's a convenient excuse that Honda rolled out because the reality is that Mark Marquez doesn't like it. 
and that's why the bike will never be seen again. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, I, I, yeah, he's the guy calling the shots this weekend, just like he is every other weekend in that team. And as much as Mir can try to, you know, influence things, it's Mark Marquez's team. And yeah, I, I, I think any excuse that Honda's made about needing to check it back in Japan is just. Yeah, I mean they could just they could just give it to to Mir, I guess. But I that's also com- I see how that's complicated also, and I see how because Marquez remember after Mizano he sounded not totally convinced. He sounded a lot more convinced suddenly in 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 India. It felt like he really stepped up the exact words he was using about that 2024 prototype. As basically by the end of the weekends, you know when he was asked. So do you plan to to race it at any point this season? He was like, nah, I tested it. I didn't feel good with it. It's a dead end. So basically, I don't expect to ride it or see it again. Out of sight, out of mind. Uh, which is an interesting situation where you two factory riders disagree on the value of the new stuff brought in. But all that said, maybe it will change a little bit for Juan Mir, the fact that you know, he clearly expected without that, the extra feeling he had on that 24 prototype, he clearly expected a really rough weekend in India. And then suddenly with his usual bike, he had a really, really good weekend. So I imagine that'll placate him and maybe convince him that actually this is fine for now too. And Honda can work at whatever they're working to, whatever they bring in Valencia that will somehow it's supposed to be much better. But at the same time, Mir did still say, I'd still like it in Mategi. I'd still like to to figure out figure out what I can do with it in a race weekend. Uh, so so we'll see which which of the which of the opinions wins out there and whether Honda tries a split somehow. Because obviously if Marcus doesn't want to ride it, he will not ride the 24 prototype. They will not force him to do that. What they do with Mir for me is is an interesting question. But also because this is a weekend where again the Mark Marcus the Grishini thing got a lot louder again. <laughs> The, the, the telling thing for me about Mir's chances of ever seeing the 24 bike again was that Marquez told us that Mir is now using his setting, his base setting, and and so is Takanakagami, who also quite liked the 24 bike. Um, that, to me, no, was no, very... No, no, Nakagami didn't. No, no, no. Bradle, I think. Oh, Bradle, sorry, Bradle. Bradle, Nakagami, yeah. Bradle, Nakagami did Bradle, not care yeah. for it. So basically, yeah. all four of the Hondas have now been moved to Mark Marquez's settings, his base setting, and I say have been moved rather than have decided to move because... Mark Marquez runs the show. And like Val said, this was there wasn't a huge development in the Mark Marquez future situation this weekend, but there was just a little change in rhetoric again. Ducati, people being a bit more open about it, some hints that this is really possibly a situation where Marquez has now made up his mind. He wants to leave for Grassini next season. It's down to whether Honda makes it actually possible for him. And obviously MotoGP is about to go to go to Japan where Honda is based. You'd expect Marquez to drop in on Honda while he's there. This could be crunch week, maybe, couldn't it? I think so. I think this is the week where the decision is made. Um, maybe even pre-weekend, although I don't think he'd be completely heartless enough to make the announcement at... Uh, at Honda's home circuit. Um, I think if he makes his mind up that he's leaving, there'll be some announcement made. There'll be like an exceptional press conference called in Madrid or in Barcelona once we get back to Europe after this. But yeah, they, they, Honda have a week of Marc Marquez being around Honda people to convince him that, you know, they're doing everything they can. They, they need to like, sit down with him and say, look, this is the people we are hiring. This is the changes we're going to make structurally. This is what we're trying to do with the bike right now. And, you know, they've, in a way they've got lucky because if, if you're going to do that, then the time to do it is right off the bat of Mark's first podium since the first round of the season. So, you know, there's, there's a, it's a good time to do it um, because they can say, well, look, things are getting better. And it'd be interesting to see whether or not he agrees with that. But, um, yeah, I, I think we're getting close to the point now where we know what's going to happen in the future. And your feeling is it is going to be a Honda exit? I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest. I still don't know. Um, I... I I, it all depends on what Honda can show him this week. And and I think we'll know probably Thursday or Friday 
or at least know more because Mark traditionally is a pretty bad poker player. Um, he, he's fairly easy to read, so you know it'll be interesting to see what he says, what the the sort of the the wording used, and what the you know what he yeah, what he comes out with whenever he's asked about how his week was, and what uh, Spanish football clips he tweets in the build up as well, based on Misano could be <laughs> extremely revealing. We'll have to rely on Val us us two to kind of talk us through what these things mean as well, because uh, he is the expert on football in every country. Yes. And, in this podcast trio well we're going to find out about that in the next few days then it's only a week until japanese grand prix at motegi we'll be back to tell you about everything that happened there straight afterwards and right now i'm feeling 50 50 on whether we'll be leading on peko banyaya having made the title fight even more wide open on mark marquez definitely leading honda leaving honda or whether it'd be one of those where peko just blitzes everyone wins by 10 seconds makes the championship boring again and we see how late in the episode we can actually mention the race where we talk about uh, rider market start crashes stewarding whatever else we can think of that we've decided is more interesting than uh, a dominant victory thanks simon thanks val thanks listeners for your company we'll speak to you again in a week's time the athletic